Who is the greatest president in U.S. history? Who is the greatest public speaker who has ever lived? Who's the greatest quarterback to ever play in the NFL? The greatest guard to ever play in the NBA? Who's the greatest artist to ever paint or sculpt? Who's the greatest guitar player or the greatest jazz trumpeter of all time? I don't know the answer to any of these questions. And the answer is subjective because a lot of them depend on your taste or your preferences or your political affiliations. And so I don't bring up these questions to answer them. I bring them up to illustrate a truth, which is people argue about who they think is the greatest at everything. The questions that I just asked, probably some of them or something like them, are pieces of conversations you've been in in your life. You've talked to people who think they know or have an opinion, certainly, about who was the greatest president or who was the greatest military general or whatever. Because people talk about these things. They argue about them. Talk radio, like, like sports talk radio, especially like during the times of the seasons or when like, there isn't a whole lot going on. They argue endlessly about questions like, who is the greatest quarterback of all time? Who's the greatest basketball coach who's ever lived? And so on. People like to argue about stuff like this. They like to argue it about other people because they have strong opinions. And they think they know the answer. People like to argue about who they think is the greatest at anything and everything you can possibly imagine. But some people also like to argue about this with regards to themselves. Cassius Clay famously said before fighting Sonny Liston, right, I am the greatest. A statement that illustrates many things except humility, right? <laughs> and although it's... Um, considered rude, I think, in our culture to claim to be the greatest, it's certainly not beyond human beings to think that they might be the greatest at something. And in other cultures where it isn't maybe so rude to claim to be the greatest, people argue about this. They think they're the best at something, and so they want recognition from other people. They want to be known as the person who is the best in the world or the most successful in the world at whatever field of endeavor they think they excel in. People argue about who they think is the greatest at everything. And this includes the apostles of Jesus Christ. For in our passage this morning, in Luke chapter 22, verse 24, the scripture says, A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. The, the disciples of Jesus just a few hours before he was betrayed, were arguing with each other about which one of them should be thought of as the greatest among them. Because this is what people do. People like recognition. And so they argue about who is the greatest at everything and anything, even arguing amongst themselves about who is the greatest. Jesus, of course, was at the table with them. He had just served them what we call the Lord's Supper. He had just taken the elements of the Passover feast and 
explained and advanced to them their true meaning and their true symbolism and how he was going to give his life for them. And in the midst of this, he hears the disciples break into this argument about which among them is the greatest of them all. And knowing human nature and actually having been with these disciples for years and having heard of them argue about this before, Jesus used the opportunity to teach them and us about the secret, the meaning of true greatness. People argue all the time about who they think is the greatest at everything, but Jesus in our passage this morning challenged his disciples to be great instead of trying to appear great to others. That is the core essence of what Jesus is getting at in our passage for this morning. And the contrast between the argument the disciples engage in and the one that Jesus transitions to or the one that he, uh, the, the, the teaching that he gives based on it is subtle, but, but it's important to see. Notice again in verse 24, the scripture says, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. And that phrase, to, considered to be the greatest, is not a stylistic translational thing that the English translators brought to the passage to make it sound nice. It reflects the original language. And the word considered there in the original Greek is the word to think. And so what the disciples are arguing about here is which one of them should be thought of as the greatest. Whoever brought this up, I think it's Simon Peter because Jesus addresses him directly in verse 31, which we'll come to next Sunday. But whoever brought this up, whoever started this argument, wanted to find out who was in mind of the other disciples as, which, as to which disciple was the greatest. And he wanted to replace his name with whoever else's name might have appeared there. He wanted recognition as the greatest. Whether he was actually the greatest or not might be important, but it's a secondary question. He wanted recognition. They wanted recognition. They wanted to be known for the greatness that they felt that they had as followers of Jesus Christ. But in Jesus' words, he's going to change the focus. Instead of worrying about who is thought to be the greatest, Jesus says you should try to be the greatest. That's a lot harder. See, it's a lot easier to impress people by excelling at a certain metric and then telling them that that's the all-important metric. Who's the greatest quarterback? Maybe the one who has the most touchdowns. Maybe the one who has the most Super Bowl wins. It depends on how you measure greatness. See, and so if you can change the conversation, you can be considered to be great if you control the metric by which someone measures true greatness. But just because you excel in one area of life and consider yourself the greatest and, and maybe even are considered by others the greatest doesn't actually mean that you are great, a great person. Some people have been thought of as the greatest, and then we find out they were cheaters, and so what we thought about them doesn't actually man, uh, measure up to reality. So Jesus confronts the question by changing the conversation. And he begins to speak to them about what true greatness really is. Now Jesus began with something that was familiar to the disciples and familiar to us from everyday secular life. We all live in this world. We all live in societies. We see people who have leadership 
powers and who are looked up to by some as being great because they have leadership powers. And we see how they exercise those leadership powers. And we begin to wonder if maybe that's what true greatness is. Maybe true greatness is aspiring to and, and, and arriving at the seats of power in government, the seats of power in business and industry, the places where you can control and make things happen. And maybe the greatest people are the people who get to those positions and then do great things with them. All of us have probably had thoughts, something like this, or had conversations where someone suggested these things. And so that's where Jesus begins in his address to the disciples. Look with me at verse 25. Jesus hears them arguing and says in verse 25, Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those who exercise authority call themselves benefactors. Jesus started with secular rulers, with people who most people would consider to be great in some sense of the word, great at least in terms of the power that they wield. Jesus starts with them. And he asserts what everyone who has ever watched a secular leader operate would agree to, would understand, would see if they really think about the way leaders and powerful people act. And then Jesus said in verse 26, but you are not to be like them. So Christ describes one aspect of greatness that's considered to be true in human cultures and then contrasts what true greatness is by his definition. And as we unpack these verses, as we look together at what Jesus says, we can isolate and find and consider some true aspects, some aspects of what it means to be great. Or in other words, we can take what Jesus says and we can reframe them as how-to instructions for us so that we can learn what it means to be great, not just to be considered great. So what did Jesus mean when he said, this is how, or what was Jesus suggesting? What was he getting at when he brought this up? What does it mean to be great according to Jesus Christ? Well, the first thing Jesus would say is this. To be great, don't abuse your power. If you want to be a great person, if you want to be a great leader, don't abuse your power. Look at verse 25. The scripture says, Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. Jesus points away from himself and away from his disciples and he points away from religious life and he points away from Israel and he points out to the secular world around them. And the disciples lived in a, um, in a much less global world than we did, of course, but it was a world that was increasingly becoming more global. Traveling was becoming easier and of course, being uh, subjects to the Roman Empire, they rubbed up against Gentile government all the time. And so Jesus points to the emperor in Rome. He points to other secular leaders that, he might have, that they might have known of um, who were under the Roman Empire, but they were Gentiles. And he says, look at the way they use power. Jesus says in verse 25, they lord it over them. That is, the, the leaders lord it over the Gentiles. And the idea of lording it over them means using power in an oppressive way, using it to benefit themselves. And Jesus says, again, in verse 25, you are not to be like that. Whatever power a disciple of Jesus Christ accumulates in life, 
Whether you find yourself in a, at the top of a large corporation or in the middle of a large corporation with people underneath you or at the top of a smaller corporation or at, uh, as a parent or in leadership in a ministry, many, there are many ways in which power is distributed in the culture in which we live. And however little of it or much of it you accumulate, at some point in your life, you're going to have the power to tell somebody else what to do. And the strong human tendency is to use that power to oppress them and benefit yourself. That's what secular leaders do. They use the power that they have to oppress other people and benefit themselves. This is what I call, what I've termed here, abuse of power. And Jesus says, if you want to be great, don't do that. Don't use the power you have to enrich yourself at the expense of other people. That is an abuse of power. And if you think back over your life, and if you think back about um, areas of life that you are personally familiar with, but also ones you've been acquainted with through learning history, reading the news, and so on, I think you'll agree that this is pretty common. That there can be abusive parents, that there can be abusive teachers, that there can be abusive administrators and CEOs and presidents and leaders in all walks of life who look at the fact that they are on top of the pyramid, organizationally speaking, that they have the last word in the the group of people that they lead. And they can use that as a way to make other people do what they want either to enrich them financially, which often happens, or just simply to control their lives, to get people to do what they want to do. If you've ever had a boss who made you work late just because he wanted to exercise power and show you who was boss, that's what's going on in this passage. And Jesus says that is not a pathway to true greatness. If you want to be great, don't abuse your power. You may think you don't have any power. You may compare yourself to others and say, well, compared to other people, I have very little power, and that may all be true. But all of us have some area, or most of us at least, have some area where we control the lives of other people. And the longer you live, the more areas of control you're likely to have, especially if you have competence in a certain area, you are more likely to rise to an area where you can control other people. If you want to be great, don't abuse that power. Don't use it for yourself, either for your self-aggrandizement or your self-benefit. To be great, don't abuse your power. But then Jesus turns a little bit. He's still talking about the secular realm, but he turns the argument a bit at the end of verse 25. And he says, if you want to be great, not only should you not abuse your power, but you also shouldn't buy the affections of other people. If you want to be great, don't buy the affections of other people. Look at verse 25 again. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. Now, what is a benefactor? A benefactor is someone who has, let's say, wealth, and uses that wealth for the benefit of others. It has the very word benefit in it, okay? It has the idea of a powerful person 
trying to benefit someone else. And in a lot of ways, secular authorities try to use power in this way. Herod, who was king over the part of Israel where Jesus was at the time, Jerusalem, was in the process of building a grand temple in the city of Jerusalem to replace the temples of Solomon and the later Old Testament temples that had been destroyed. He was spending an enormous amount of money to build a massive, beautiful temple in Israel for God's people, the Jews, and the Jews loved it. Remember earlier on, just a few uh, weeks ago, the disciples pointed out to Jesus how magnificent the temple that Herod was building for them was. The intent here then is to give the people a gift that they want so that they will look up to the leader. It's an exchange, a gift in exchange for adoration, a gift of something real and tangible in exchange for more power, more authority, or at least recognition and acclaim of other people. And again, people in secular society do this all the time. If you've, and you have, driven past a building that um, is like an educational building or perhaps a hospital or some kind of healthcare building, something that is designed for the benefit of the public, and there's a person's name on it. That person considers themselves a benefactor. They said, I'm taking a piece of my wealth, and I am giving it for the benefit of the people, and I want you to know it, so I'm going to make sure my name is on it. Or if you know of a politician who is well-known for bringing home the bacon to his or her district, all right, using the pooled... Um, uh, resources of the federal government and bringing some of those pooled resources home to the benefit of the people. And they say, you should vote for me and you should love me because look at what I've done. This is someone who is saying, I have used my power to help you view me as your benefactor. And people do this all the time. They do it in the religious world as well. I'm, 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 I've been acquainted with, I don't know this man well, but I've been acquainted with a, a pastor who did quite well in the ministry for a long time. He had a very large church, but he also had some subordinate ministries. And all of these brought a lot of money into his, into his ministry and into his life. And recently, a lot of things that he's done that were sinful have been exposed. And some of those things involve him using ministry funds to, in one case, buy a car for somebody in the press that he wanted good press from, to buy an expensive watch for someone in... Uh, under him in leadership, but someone whose affection he craved. He was someone who would use the wealth that was given to him by the people of God for the benefit of the ministry, and he would use it to buy favor with other people. This is not great leadership. Using your power to benefit others so that they'll look up to you is not the kind of leadership that makes one great. It's the kind of leadership that makes people think you are great, maybe, Sometimes people see through it, though, too. But it's not one that makes somebody truly great. But how many things do we do in our lives? How many things do we do in our relationships with others? We do calculating, hoping to get a benefit from it. We give so that people will think better of us. This is exactly what Jesus is saying is not what makes someone great. It's common. 
It's a much used approach. It may help people think and consider you to be a great person, but not in the sight of God. If you want to be great in the sight of God, don't abuse your power and don't use your power to make others think you're great, to buy the affections of others. This is what Jesus said in verse 25. In verse 26, Jesus then gives us the contrast. He told us what not to do to become a great, a truly great person. Now he's going to tell us what to do. He's going to tell us how to become great in reality, which is in the sight of God, the only thing that matters. And the first thing he tells us is to be great, cultivate humility. That means in yourself. Cultivate humility in yourself. True greatness in the sight of God starts with a, a person, a leader who has a humble heart a genuine recognition of who we are before God in the absolute sense. How we are fallen and how we are weak and how we are subject to sins and temptations and how we don't have all the answers and have much to learn. These are aspects of a humble heart. And Jesus says, cultivate this. Look with me at verse 26. The scripture says, but you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you. Now Jesus is changing the language a little bit here. He's changing the thought. Instead of saying the one who is thought to be the greatest, he is saying the one who is actually the greatest. And in a moment, he's going to talk about leadership, okay? And so he's going to, tra- he's going to use the word great to apply not only to um, true greatness, but actually to leadership greatness. All right. So verse 26 continues and says, instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. Let's take that phrase first that says, instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest. Now it's helpful to think about what life was like in the world in which Jesus lived when we consider this part of Jesus' instructions. In our world, we have almost a, um, a pedestalizing, to coin a word, of children. We put children on a pedestal, all right? And we, and we say they're the future and we need to invest in them. And this is all true to, to a certain I'm not mocking this so much as, as, as much as I am to try to set up a contrast between Jesus' world. In our world, we think a lot about children. We, we think of, uh, well of them. We have aspirations for them. We assign good motives to them. And in many ways, that's a helpful thing. I think it's a lot better than the world Jesus lived in in many ways. But in Jesus' world, kids were not thought of that way. In Jesus' world, kids had a lot to learn. In Jesus' world, kids were supposed to be helpful. In Jesus' world, kids were to be not seen and not heard in many instances especially involving men, because it was a society that was led strongly by men and where men were the focus of many things. And so children were to stay out of the way. We saw this in in the life of Jesus when children wanted to come to him and parents wanted to bring their babies to him and the disciples are like, get these kids out of here. Jesus doesn't have time for them, right? And Jesus said, no, bring them, bring them to me. We see that Jesus had a different attitude toward children. But here in verse 26, when he says, Those, uh, whoever wants to be the greatest among you should be like the youngest. What he is saying is, think about how our society treats children. It treats children as people who have a lot to learn. It 
It treats children as people who stand at the end of the food line, not at the beginning of it. It sees children as people who can help out and do tasks to help mom and dad around the house and around the farm and around you know, the, the work that, that we do as a family. Children were really viewed as helpers. They were not viewed as people who should be isolated from work kept from responsibility, sent off to be educated, and given all the Nikes and other stuff that they want. Children were not idealized in the world in which Jesus lived. But Jesus says, if you want to be great, you should think of yourself like you're the youngest child in the family. Now this we can relate to a little bit, right? The youngest child in the family chronically feels left out, right? How many youngest child? I'm not, all right, I'm the middle. Middles are, we're, we're different, Okay. <laughs> But how many of you are the youngest child, you kind of felt like you were left out of things, okay? How many of you kind of felt like you could never measure up to your older brothers or sisters? How many of you felt like you were an afterthought in many ways? How many of you were put down by your older siblings because you didn't know enough? How could you not know enough? You're five and they're 30, right? So how could you, how could you, ever, you, know, how could you ever have the same kind of knowledge or experience in the world that they have and yet they made you feel less than? Jesus says, if you want to be great, Cultivate that spirit in yourself. Stop thinking you have all the answers. Stop viewing yourself as someone who should be at the beginning of the food line instead of at the end of it. Stop thinking of yourself as someone who should be looked up to. Start looking at yourself as someone who needs to contribute wherever you can because that's what's expected of you. This is a heart of humility and it's hard to bear, isn't it? It's hard when you're in leadership to take input and feedback from other people. Many leaders look at feedback from other people, even if they're phrased respectfully as requests. Many people are threatened. Many leaders are threatened by them. They think it indicates a lack of knowledge or a lack of understanding or a lack of priorities. And so people get, some leaders get very defensive when other people have suggestions for them. And as a leader, you can never please everyone, and so you do have to set a course. You can't, and the leader who tries to please everyone pleases nobody, and that's, that's a disaster waiting to happen. So you do have to sometimes decide who's, whose voice you're going to listen to. But the point is, if you've ever worked for a, a, a boss or been under a leader who had all the answers and would never take input and could never hear that there were problems, real problems that needed to be addressed, they poo-pooed the problem or blamed you for the problem or just tried to divert it away and wouldn't listen to good advice, then you understand what Jesus is saying here. You're talking about a person who's not humble. Talking about a person who has an elevated sense of self. Now, there may be deep insecurity that's part of that. All right, That happens too. Insecure people have trouble taking advice or taking input or even you know, getting criticism, right? But The point of the matter is a humble person recognizes their place. If you're younger and your older brother tells you something and he knows it and it's true, you should learn from that, all right? Or you can just make the same mistake yourself. But a humble person would learn from it. Jesus said, if you want to be great, cultivate humility. Think of yourself like the youngest person who has a lot to learn and who isn't going to get the biggest share of the inheritance and who doesn't deserve to be looked up to. Jesus says, if you want to be great, cultivate humility. But then he said this, if you want to be great, I'm just going to lump everything into one category here. 
If you want to be great, follow Jesus, because Jesus is going to talk about being a servant here, but he's going to tell us that he himself is the model servant, all right? And so the things Jesus says about being a servant, about servanthood, as we sometimes call it, are all about following him. They're all about doing what he did. They're all about living the kind of life that Jesus himself lived. Look with me at verse 25 at the end of the verse. Sorry, verse 26 says, Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules. All right, now, so Jesus is moving the discussion from objective greatness as a person to now leadership greatness. The one who rules, the one who has an, who has, um, an actual seat of authority, someone who has a title that gives them power. What should this person do? Verse 26 says, That person, the one who rules, should be like the one who serves. And in so doing, Jesus introduced an uncomfortable topic in his own society. We're used to talking about servant-based leadership, even secular corporations, I find, because I listen to podcasts about leadership and stuff. Even secular corporations will talk about servant-based leadership. And it used to surprise me, but now it's so common, it doesn't surprise me, all right? But this is where Christian ideas and, 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 and Christian aspects of our culture have permeated throughout. And so at least people give lip service to this. But in Jesus' world, what he said was shocking. Because when Jesus talks about servants, he's talking about slaves. He's talking about people who were owned by other people for the benefit of those people. Slaves don't have rights. They may have opinions, but they are not welcomed. They don't have any decisions to make about what they're going to do or when they're going to do it. It's all told to them. It's all dictated to them by those who lead. And Jesus says, this is the mentality you should have if you want to be a leader. But Jesus immediately followed that with his own discussion of himself. Verse 27 says, for who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Now think about this in the world in which Jesus lived. Jesus was invited to many homes for dinner. Most of the people who invited him into their home were people of means, which means they had made it in the world around them. They had, they had um, achieved at least some level of recognition, and they had some level of wealth. Almost all of them had slaves. When Jesus would enter such a home... The homeowner would immediately recline, because remember they laid down, which is weird, but that's what they did. They would lay down in front of the table. All right, They would relax. The slaves who had been working away to prepare the meals would come and offer them water. They would wash their feet. They would um, begin to put out you know, the, the, the appetizers or whatever the courses were. They would do whatever the master wanted. If the master wanted wine immediately, they would get the wine for him, all right? Jesus is saying, who's the great one? The person who is following orders because they're slaves. Or the person who owns the house, who owns the table, who owns the slaves, and is lying down there, propped up on his arm, waiting for the food and drink to arrive. Which one is greater? Well, the answer is easy. Verse 27 says, Which, who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? And this is phrased in a way that expects a positive answer. Yes, it's the homeowner. It's the guy at the table. He's the Lord. He's the guy that's the greatest one. And then Jesus says this in verse 27, But I am among you as one who serves. And Luke doesn't tell us this part of the Lord's Supper, but 
you remember from reading other passages about the Lord's Supper, other, the other Gospels that contain these, these uh, words about these same events in the life of Christ, that at this meal, at this Passover feast that we call the Lord's Supper, where Jesus was using somebody else's house we saw last Sunday, that Jesus himself took off his outer garment and put a towel around his waist, and got a bowl of water and went and washed the feet of the disciples. And again, we, I think we romanticize this. Remember, Jesus lived in a world where people walked around with open shoes. They walked around in sandals or in bare feet. And they walked around in a world where people would lead their animals through the streets. And those animals would leave things behind, you know what I'm talking about here, that were not pleasant to smell. And people would walk around in this stuff. They would walk around in the dirt and the dust and the animal leftovers and then they would come into the house and it was customary for the homeowner to have one of the slaves wash the feet of those guests. Not only did it make them smell better, but it felt good to have your feet washed after walking around all day. When Jesus wanted to teach servanthood, he did this. He didn't say you should wash each other's feet until he got down and did this, this dirty task himself first. And that's what Jesus is alluding here to in verse 27 when he says, but I am among you as one who serves. He said, if you want to be great, you think you need to be the homeowner and have slaves under you. Jesus is saying, if you really want to be great, you should act like a slave. You should surrender your rights to God and do the right thing, the thing that needs to be done. You should act like I did, all right? So Jesus, what was Jesus like? What does it mean to follow Jesus? Well, he served others instead of using his position to demand service. Jesus could have insisted that the disciples wash his feet, and it would have been done for him. Judas, get over here and wash up. And it would have been done for him right before Judas left and collected his 30 pieces of silver, Jesus could have insisted that the disciples do his bidding. And by the way, he did do that. He did tell the disciples to do some things. We'll talk about this a little bit later, I think. But Jesus did not demand this kind of service. Instead, Jesus demonstrated the kind of servant's heart, the kind of, a, the kind of um, action that puts others ahead of himself in the way that he treated his disciples. And so if you want to be great, take on the heart of a servant. Think of yourself as someone who belongs to God and whose daily tasks and priorities are not set by you, the homeowner, but are set by God, the real homeowner. And start to think about what it would mean to live life if God were handing you specific tasks to do for his glory and for his people. This is the path to true greatness that Jesus advocated for his disciples, and not only advocated, but modeled in his own way, in the way that he acted toward the disciples. So to be great, follow Jesus. What did Jesus do? He served others instead of using his position to demand service. What else did Jesus do? Jesus tells us to trust him and to follow him through life's trials. Now, because the argument turns here a little bit, and so we need to follow what Jesus is saying here. Look at verse 28. After saying, I'm a, I was among you as one who serves, he says, 
You are those who have stood by me in my trials. This seems like a turn away from the, the topic at hand, but it isn't. Remember that from the very beginning, Jesus has called these men to leave their lives behind, to leave their fishing nets behind, to leave their tax boot collector booth behind, to leave behind their secular employment and their personal priorities and their hometowns and follow him. And following him meant living by faith. It meant waiting for Jesus to provide a place for them to sleep and the meals that they needed to live and to make sure that their, their family stuff was taken care of at home. All of everything that Jesus did was predicated on faith. And now Jesus is going to say, you've passed one of the rungs. Now, what we need to understand here is that all of this is happening in the context of the Passover meal, the Last Supper. And we looked last time at how Judas had conspired with others to betray Jesus so that he would lead these temple guards to a place where Jesus was alone, where there wouldn't be a riot when he was arrested. All right, So he's already conspired to do this. The Bible says he was following the leadership of Satan as he did this. And yet all of it was under the sovereign will of God. That was all last week's sermon in about three sentences. And Jesus has just told the disciples, right before this dispute broke out, he said to them in verse 22, or verse 21, but the hand of him who is going to betray me is, mine on, is with mine on the table. Judas was sitting right there with him. Now, we, Luke doesn't tell us this, but we understand from the other Gospels that after this exchange, after Jesus reveals that one of the disciples is going to betray him, Judas leaves. And so between verse 21 and between where we are right now, verse 28, where Jesus says, you are those who have stood by me in my trials, there's been a winnowing that's happened. The false disciple Judas has departed. Now Jesus is left with those who truly had put their faith in him. They're not done. They're, next week we're going to see that Jesus warns them they're about to face an even more severe trial than anything they have seen before. And yet Jesus acknowledges that their faith is genuine, that they have been through some things with him, that they've seen some trials and they've stuck with him. They haven't departed. They haven't lost their faith or rejected their faith, the call to faith, the way that Judas has. And so that's what he's saying in verse 28 when he says, you are those who have stood by me in my trials. He's indicating that they have shown the kind of true faith in him that disciples need to have if they're going to live for him and follow him and serve like he served. But you and I still have trials to face. We face some if we're followers of Jesus, but we're not done. And what Jesus is reminding us here, he's calling us to trust him and follow him through the trials. This is what it means to lead like Jesus. It means to not give up on your faith when things in life get hard, when your faith is challenged, when there are questions, when there are doubts in your mind. It takes faith to persevere. If you want to be great and follow Jesus, you need to trust him in the trials that come in life. And then Jesus went on to describe, he's continuing to describe the kind of servant life that he modeled here. And what he tells the disciples is, you've believed in me, now here's what's coming for you, verse 29. And I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Here Jesus sets forth the promise. 
The disciples have stuck with him in trials. They've shown genuine faith, and there's more to come. There are more trials ahead. He's already warned them about this, and he's going to warn them again in the next passage. But because their faith is genuine, because they are in him and they are believing in him, he says there's a promise for you. But the promise that he gives also shows the kind of servant leadership he modeled. So what I'm saying is this. What did Jesus do as a servant leader? He promised to share his kingdom with all those who follow him. Again, verse 28, verse 29. And I confer on you a kingdom just as my father conferred one on me. Here's the point. At someday, someday Jesus is going to return. He's going to set up what we call his millennial kingdom. And that kingdom then will, will extend into eternity. And Jesus will reign as king. And he said, this was given to me by my father. It's the gift of God to God the son. But Jesus is saying, I'm not holding this for myself. I'm not hoarding this. I'm not going to be the only leader in the kingdom. This is not a kind of feudalistic system where the master receives all the benefits and the, the, the serfs do all the work. No, he's saying as my disciples, I'm also bringing you into this kind of leadership. I'm giving you the benefits of this kingdom. Notice again, he says in verse 29, and I confer on you a kingdom just as my father conferred one on me so that you may eat and drink at my table. The disciples aren't going to be slaves bringing the food to Jesus. They're going to be with him at the table, enjoying the benefits of being the owner, the Lord. And he says, sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. What does this teach us about greatness? What does it teach us about leadership? It teaches this, that a great leader shares, shares the benefits, shares the, um, the, the levers of power. It's not someone who hoards for himself or herself, but rather someone who brings others in and shares what they have, what he has with them. And so this is what Jesus challenged his disciples about. People argue about who's the greatest at everything, but Jesus says, if you want to really be great, not just be thought to be great, here's the way to do it. Here's the kind of life you need to live. And so the big idea for this passage, this message, the, the point that we need to take home and consider for ourselves and the one you'll discuss in your small groups starting tonight and throughout this week is this. If you want to be great, serve others the way Jesus serves us. That's, that's the point of all of this. Christ served us first. And in so doing, he modeled the kind of humility he commands us to have. And he modeled the kind of leadership, the kind of true greatness that he commanded us to, to, uh, to exhibit, to yield to others. And so what does this mean for us? Again, these are more principle than they are practical ideas, but I think they're helpful for us to think through. First of all, great leadership is Christian leadership. All right, And so it starts with faith. If you want to be great in life, you need to believe in Jesus and his definition of greatness. That may not get you to the corridors of power in Washington, D.C., or it may not get you to the C-suite level in your corporation. But Jesus doesn't think those are really true greatness anyway. If you want to be truly great, like eternally great, it's great in the opinion of God, you need to empty yourself of your own Ideas that you can justify yourself or work your way into the presence of God and believe in Jesus and accept his definition of true greatness. Have you done that? 
Have you received by faith the kingdom that Jesus confers upon those who love him and those who serve him? Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? If not, let me, let me invite you. Christ welcomes you to his family. He welcomes you into his kingdom. And he says, all you, all you must do is believe in me. And so if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, this is where true greatness begins for you. It begins by humbling yourself before the truly great one, the God, the creator of all things, and his son, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. And to say, God, I'm not asking you to give me eternal life because I am great. I'm going to receive it as a gift from the great one, Jesus Christ. If you're not a Christian, let me encourage you, let me invite you to trust in Jesus and his definition of greatness. And then I have two kind of principal things that maybe will help us put this into practice, okay? And so when I think about what leading like Jesus looks like, these are some things that come to mind from the text. First of all, do for others what they won't do for others. How do you demonstrate servant leadership? You do for others what they won't do for each other, all right? And what I have in mind here is the foot washing that Jesus did. Any one of the disciples could have and should have washed the feet of the others, but none of them wanted to lower himself to take on the activity of a slave and wash the feet of the disciples. You, don't, you aren't winning the, the argument about who is the greatest if you were the one who put on the towel unless you're Jesus. And so any one of the disciples could have demonstrated a servant's heart. Any one of them could have washed the feet of the others, but they wouldn't do it because they were too proud. And if you can think of things in your life, in your church, here in our church, in, in, your, um, in your ministry life, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your family, if you can think of things that people won't do for other people and do those things for them, that is moving in a direction of great greatness according to Jesus. You are modeling what Jesus did. Jesus was willing to do the dirty work that nobody else among his disciples was willing to do. He was willing to do for others what they won't do for others. All right? And again, I, I actually have the passage in John where all of this is quoted and all this is described. In John 13, I'm going to read verses 3 through 5 and then verses 12 through 15. We see this, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal. This is the same situation that's described here in Luke. He got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, the, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. If you think about things in life, things in our church that need to be done that nobody wants to do, as opportunities to demonstrate servant leadership, as opportunities to be great, then maybe this is a way for you to put this message into practice. There are needs all over our congregation. There are needs all over our, our um, community that nobody really wants to do because they're time-consuming, they're difficult, 
They're menial, maybe. Nobody wants to do them. We won't do them for others. Maybe one way to put this message into practice is to say, I've seen that need, and I think somebody should do something about it. Maybe the Lord's calling me to be the someone who should do something about it. Now, we have to be careful here because, um, I, honestly, I've got to tell you that this is something that I struggle, have struggled with as a ministry leader like, for as long as I can remember. Because I've seen all kinds of needs. Okay? And when I see a wall that needs to be painted or... Um, someone that needs to be spoken to, or I feel like, well, I should just do it, right? I should, I should, be the, I should demonstrate true humility and just do this thing, right? But the point is, if I did that, if I, if I jumped into every menial task that, that nobody wants to do and just did them, how much time would I have left to study the Word? How much time would I have left to pray for the congregation? How much time would I have left to speak to people who need either the gospel or a word of encouragement. Jesus washed the feet of the disciples, but he didn't do it every day. In fact, before our passage, he commanded Peter and John to go find the room and prepare the meal. Why didn't Jesus just do it himself if he's Mr. Humility? Well, the answer is he was willing to do anything. That's the point. Nothing was, Jesus didn't say nothing. Jesus didn't think anything was above him in terms of doing what the people needed. But the goal of his life really was what dictated what he did with himself. That's why he didn't stay in one, pe- in one place and heal all the people who needed healing. Healing was one part of his mission. But the main part of his mission was teaching and gathering the disciples and preparing them to take over. And so Christ had to prioritize. And so do you and I. When I say do for others what they won't do for others, I'm not saying fill up your life with all of the garbage tasks that nobody wants to do. But I am saying have an attitude that says, I will meet a need, even though it's one that other, nobody else wants to do. We all see the need, but none of us wants to actually do it. I have the desire or I have the heart that says, I'm willing to do that. All right, That's the kind of thing that Jesus is modeling here and describing for us. And so... My question to you is, what, what do you see around you that needs to be done? And if spiritual things, godly things, things that involve leading people to Christ and helping them grow in Christ, are, if those are eternal things that last forever, then those should be at the top of our list. So who do you know who needs to hear the gospel message? Who do you know that may be struggling with a sin that may need a word of, of help and encouragement? And no one else, everybody else sees the same problem, but nobody wants to talk to the person. These are the kinds of things that Jesus wants us to look at and say, here's where I can be great. I can humble myself and do for others what no one else wants to do for them. This is where true greatness comes from. Finally, I would say this. Do for others what they can't do for themselves. Do for others what they can't do for themselves. And here we have to look back just a couple verses to verses 19 through 20. Before this argument arose, Jesus foretold and modeled for the disciples what was about to happen, about him going to the cross to die for us. He was going to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, which is atone for our sins. And so he says in verse 19, he took the bread, he gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. His body was about to be crucified on a cross for our sins. And he says, 
this is my body. This, this bread represents it, given for you. In verse 20, in the same way after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. You and I did not have the ability to atone for our sins. And we don't have the ability through sheer human will and self-improvement to change ourselves and make ourselves righteous and acceptable before a holy God. And so what happened? Christ humbled himself, came to earth, became a man. He became one of us. The one-of-a-kind Lord became one of us and then gave his life, taking upon him all the wrath of God for human sin so that he could give to you as a gift his kingdom, his righteousness, eternal life. He was willing to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. And if you want to be great, think about what that means. Think about what it means to others who can't rid themselves of a sin. They, they may want to, but they're stuck in it, the Bible would say, would say in Galatians. You who are spiritual, help restore that person. As followers of Jesus Christ, if we want to be great, we need to do what Jesus did. We need to follow his example. We need to serve others the way Jesus serves us. And part of that means doing for others what they can't do for themselves. So I don't have any specific action items where I can say, go do this task and then you will be great. But I can give you some principles, some things to think about in your life. Are you cultivating a, a heart of humility? And are you looking for ways to serve others in, 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 in ways that help them in their walk with God. This is what true greatness is all about. If you want to be great, serve others the way Jesus serves us.